hppodcraft.com. There is nothing more absurd, as I view it, than the conventional association of the homely and the wholesome, which seems to pervade the psychology of the multitude. Mention a bucolic Yankee setting, a bungling and thick-fibered village undertaker, and a careless mishap in a tomb, and no average reader can be brought to expect more than a hearty, albeit grotesque, phase of comedy. God knows, though, that the prosy tale which George Birch's death permits me to tell has in it aspects beside which some of our darkest tragedies are light. That was the opening paragraph of In the Vault. That's right, and it's the first story in our doubleheader today, the second of which will be The Descendants. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And I'm Chris Lackey. And this is the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At hppodcraft.com. Uh, that was read by Anthony Tedesco. Oh, yeah, we've had Anthony on the show before, and he's always... Of the Hound fame. Oh, right, yeah, he did The Hound. He got a, he got a lot of fans. A lot of people were, hey, want more of that Tedesco, and so <laughs> to those people... There you go. There you are. And once again, this episode will feature some music from Troy Sterling Nice. Thank you, Troy. Uh, he he's donated a multitude of music to the HP Lovecraft yeah. Literary Podcast. We're taking it. We're taking it like thieves. <laughs> thieves that have asked permission and then we're given the product uh, <laughs> you know, by the person that owns it. <laughs> so in the vault, right at the beginning of the story, it says dedicated to C. W. Smith. Yeah. From whose suggestion the central situation is taken? What is that all about? Well, C. W. Smith uh, was the uh, publisher of the tryout, which has published a number of H. P. Lovecraft stories, including the Cats of Ulthar, the Terrible Old Man, the Tree, and uh, he basically gave Lovecraft this idea. Uh, which was an undertaker is imprisoned um, in a village vault where he was removing winter coffins for spring burial and his escape by enlarging a transom reached by the piling up of coffins. And right. that's what happens in the story, basically. Right. The central situation. Yeah, I guess the kind of the whole story was taken from that suggestion. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was. Um, the, on, the creepy element was the only um, real thing that was added by Lovecraft. Right. And, and a transom, which I had to look up because I wasn't sure what it was, is kind mm. of a window above a door. Right, right. A yeah. little opening over the, the, the door. Exactly. Um, now, with that first paragraph, uh, he says, you know, people assume that if somebody's homely that they're also wholesome, <laughs> which is kind of funny. <laughs> uh, I mean, I understand what he's saying. He's just saying that people will make assumptions based on appearance, you know. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Like right. people thought George W. Bush was an honest politician because he looks like some, you know, idiot up at the gas station or something. You know? <laughs> he can't put together a sentence, so he must be he must be a down home kind of one of us kind of guy. But I think the same goes for good looking people. I actually, I, you know, I think it's more often that good looking people get the benefit of the doubt. Right. Oh, absolutely. I mean, how many times have people trusted you just because you're handsome? Oh, I, I can't even begin to count. Only to be disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> well, my wife, for one. <laughs> exactly. You tricked her. I totally tricked her. So, uh, Lovecraft mentioned that this was George Birch's tale. Yes. He's the central character. So, uh, let's get into it. All right. Birch acquired a limitation and changed his business in 1881, yet never discussed the case when he could avoid it. Neither did his old physician, Dr. Davis, who died years ago. It was generally stated that the affliction and shock were the results of an unlucky slip, whereby Birch had locked himself for nine hours in the receiving tomb of Peck Valley Cemetery, escaping only by crude and disastrous mechanical means. But while this much is undoubtedly true, there are other and blacker things which the man used to whisper to me in his drunken delirium toward the last. He confided in me because I was his doctor, and because 
he probably felt the need of confiding in someone else after Davis died. He was a bachelor, wholly without relatives. So that's the setup. Yeah, he's a, you know, kind of a loner, um, doesn't have any family, likes the drink. Yes, likes the drink a lot. And he's crippled somehow. And he switched his business from being an undertaker to something else because because something shocked him, yeah. probably being locked up in a tomb for nine hours. Right. Well, in the story, the doctor goes on to say Birch was the undertaker. And, you know, he was a he's not just a drinker now. He was a drinker on the job right back then. And he was bad at his job. <laughs> well, he what he would often do, uh, he would cut corners, uh, so to yeah. speak, you know, just to, to make a little extra money. It kind of implies that he also maybe did a little grave robbing, you know, like. Yeah, he took some of their clothes from them or something. Yeah, yeah. He took stuff that people didn't, um, you know, because they were dead. Nobody was going to check a grave. So he would just, you know, right. lift, lift whatever he wanted. So the story starts in the December of 1880 and the ground is frozen in that winter and nobody can dig any graves so they're just putting the bodies in this vault until yes. there's a thaw and they could bury yeah. them which recalls the story from the shunned house um, about the the people in Exeter who had, had burned the heart of the vampire oh right because that was a real story about Mercy Brown who was exhumed in 1892 and whose heart was burned that was a real story Right, I mean, and they, they thought she was a vampire because when they exhumed her body, she hadn't decomposed, but she had just been really well preserved because she had been in a vault all winter in freezing temperatures. Right. So this is kind of he's. You can see he's drawing in that situation of there being a terrible, terrible, you know, freeze, so that they have to keep all the bodies above ground. It's a good way to get a bunch of bodies stacked up in a vault. Uh, anyhow, since nobody can dig any graves, Birch has taken all the dead folks and he's placing them in that vault. And he's in the this winter. He's doing a really terrible job. <laughs> all the coffins that he's building are crappy and he keeps slamming the vault door open and shut carelessly as he's going in and stacking them up. Now there's a couple of, of people that are buried. These are kind of characters that he knew when they were alive. Right. Uh, there is old Matthew Fenner. Right. Matthew, uh, when spring comes and Birch gets his lazy ass around to finally doing some work, <laughs> he goes, uh, it's April and, uh, he's going to get the body of Matthew Fenner for burial. Um, now, now, it's funny, the first time he'd made a coffin for Matthew Fenner, who was this kind of sweet old man, it was a really crappy coffin. Right. And so he cast it aside, and he made a much better one for Matthew. And that crappy one, he didn't want to He didn't want to waste the money, so he yeah. gave it to another guy who was named Asif Sawyer. Is that, yeah. is that right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And all he really knows about Sawyer is that he was a real jerk. Yeah, he was a, a bitter, angry guy that would be really vindictive and, and mean for right. for wrongs real or fancied. I like right. <laughs> <laughs> I like that too. So yeah, Asif Sawyer was uh, he would lash out at people. That's all we really know about him. And that he got the bad coffin made for Matthew Fenner. So uh, on this April day, Birch gets into the vault and he wants to find Matthew Fenner's coffin so he can take it out for burial. Um, it's dark in the vault, so he's groping around. Yeah. It was just as he had recognized old Matt's coffin that the door slammed to in the wind, leaving him in a dusk even deeper than before. The narrow transom admitted only the feeblest of rays, and the overhead ventilation funnel virtually none at all, so that he was reduced to a profane fumbling as he made his halting way among the long boxes toward the latch. In this funereal twilight, he rattled the rusty handles, pushed at the iron panels, and wondered why the massive portal had grown so suddenly recalcitrant. In this twilight, too, he began to realize the truth and to shout loudly as if his horse outside could do more than neigh an unsympathetic reply. For the long-neglected latch was obviously broken, leaving the careless undertaker trapped in the vault 
a victim of his own oversight. That's what you get for going to work drunk. That's right. That's right. <laughs> uh, so he's trapped inside the vault. Yeah. Um, and it's dark in there, and he can't get the door open, but there is that transom, which you mentioned earlier. Well, first, he, he, he yeah, he, he has some tools. Right, that, right. Uh, that he, you know, he remembered he brought with him. So he goes over and gropes around, finds the tools, and tries to uh, bust the lock uh, from the inside. Yeah. But it's just way too sturdy. It's not, it's not giving at all. I feel so bad for him in this moment, even though I know that he's a drunk and he's doing a terrible job. It's sort of just like locking your keys in your car or locking yourself yeah. out of the house. It's that terrible moment. Ah, oh, what did I do? Well, I mean, even in the beginning of the story, they say that he wasn't really an evil man. He was just kind of a... Yeah, he's just kind of a halfwit. Yeah, exactly. And um, to get to this to this window above the door, he, he can't reach it. So that's where he gets the bright idea of stacking the coffins. Yeah, he decides to make a platform with them. He, he basically stacks them into a platform that's got, a, it ascends with, you know, there's like stairs built into it. And, right. um, you know, he it says that he uh, he pauses to wish that he'd put the coffins together better as he's doing this thing. Um, although it says whether he had imagination enough to wish they were empty is strongly to be doubted. Yeah. <laughs> so he's just uh, he's not even scared of the bodies inside or anything like that. But he's got to be flipping strong, man. Like, yeah, that's what I was thinking. <laughs> like too. Moving a coffin around on your own is is I mean, this thing's got to be flipping heavy, yeah. man. Yeah. Jeez. And on the top of this platform that he makes, he wants to put a very sturdy coffin up there at the top for him to stand on while he's hacking away at this transom. Right. So he places Matthew Fenner's coffin up there, that one that he rebuilt because he liked Matthew. He has to feel for it in the dark, and it says it, it seems almost as if the coffin, like, tumbled into his hands. Right. Like, it found him. <laughs> it's almost a little uh, romantic story there. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> it's a short one. Just a very yeah, short it's, one. It's a very short romance. So he, he builds the structure and he chips away at the transom with the few tools he has. Uh, he started this in the afternoon. About midnight, the hole is finally large enough up there that he can try to wriggle through. But the coffin he's standing on, the one which he th had thought was the sturdiest, the lid gives way. And his foot goes through and the horse outside, whether it gets a whiff of the body or it just hears the noise, it gets really spooked and it finally runs away. Birch, in his ghastly situation, was now too low for an easy scramble out of the enlarged transom but gathered his energies for a determined try. Clutching the edges of the aperture, he sought to pull himself up when he noticed a queer retardation in the form of an apparent drag on both of his ankles. In another moment, he knew fear for the first time that night, for struggle as he would, he could not shake clear of the unknown grasp which held his feet in relentless captivity. Horrible pains, as of savage wounds, shot through his calves, and in his mind was a vortex of fright mixed with an unquenchable materialism that suggested splinters, loose nails, or some other attribute of a breaking wooden box. Perhaps he screamed. At any rate, he kicked and squirmed frantically and automatically whilst his consciousness was almost eclipsed in a half-swoon. So, you know, he wriggles his way out of the transom outside, out of the vault, and his ankle's all ripped up. Yeah, terribly and, and horribly. So he's yeah. like on the ground and, and uh, he can't he, he can't even walk. Yeah, he claws himself uh, over to the lodgekeeper's house. Who, yeah. And then the lodgekeeper. What, what is a lodgekeeper anyway? Is that just a guy who... He's the one. He, he keeps a lodge. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> I don't know. I just wasn't familiar with that archetypical uh, Dickensian profession of the, the the lodge keeper. I think it's just an innkeeper, yeah, right? Probably. No. Yeah, probably. I don't know. Just sounds like a really great job. 
<laughs> why is it sound like a great job? I don't know. It just is like, you know, you just hang out in the lodge and make sure it's all, you know, up to keep. <laughs> and I, I don't know, man. I must just be hating my job when I'm like, man, Lodgekeeper sounds great. So the wounds on, well, the Dr. Davis, who is this doctor that was referenced earlier, it's, uh, you know, Birch is his initial doctor before the protagonist of the story became the doctor. He uh, shows up at the Lodgekeeper's place and the wounds on, on Birch's ankles freak him out. Yeah. Well, Dr. Davis isn't a, you know, he's a pretty impersonal guy. So it's strange for him. You know, he's a pretty not affected by emotion. So it's pretty strange for him to be so freaked out by these wounds. Yeah. You know, it says that he he binds them so fast. It's almost as if he's doing it so he doesn't have to see them anymore. Right. And and the injury is really bad. Birch has hobbled because the tendons in his, his leg were severed. Yeah. His Achilles tendons were, were severed. So, I mean, that's not just a minor injury. That's your, your hose. Yeah. It's terrible. <laughs> that, it reminds me of that of, uh, the urban legend about the people that would or they would say out at the mall that you had to be careful in the parking lot because they would hide underneath your car yeah exactly there'd be people hiding underneath your car waiting to slash your your Achilles tendon uh well Davis says to Birch you know don't let anybody see these wounds at least not right now after he dresses them and he goes off to do some investigating first he asks Birch you know are you sure that was the coffin of Fenner that you put up there and not the coffin of Sawyer. So Dr. Davis uh, bails and he goes down to the tomb to investigate. Mm-hmm. And uh, when he gets in there, he sees the whole mess and he's you know, nauseated by the smell of the dead. Yeah. And it, it really, whatever he sees in there, he gives out a couple of screams, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, very unphysician like freak out in the tomb. And uh, he runs back. Now, the doctor seems to know, he, he, as he's kind of walking down to the tomb to investigate, you know, the doctor seems to know something about this Sawyer. And right. he, he'd attended both Fenner and Sawyer's funerals. And at Sawyer's funeral, he wondered, now, how did he fit that taller guy into that tiny coffin? Uh-huh. I mean, he had actually already had that thought. Yeah. So um, when he goes down to the tomb, whatever he sees freaks him out. And he runs back. And I love that it says he runs back and he starts just shaking the patient. <laughs> and I imagine that in this entire next scene that we're about to hear, you know, he's just shaking and slapping and slapping birds over and over and over, you know. It was Asaph's coffin, Birch, just as I thought. I knew his teeth, with the front ones missing on the upper jaw. Never, for God's sake, chew those wounds. The body was pretty badly gone, but if ever I saw vindictiveness on any face or former face, you know what a fiend he was for revenge. How he ruined old Raymond 30 years after their boundary suit, and how he stepped on the puppy that snapped at him a year ago last August. He is the devil incarnate, Birch. And I believe his eye for an eye fury could be old Father Death himself. Oh, God, what a rage. I'd hate to have it aimed at me. Why did you do it, Birch? He was a scoundrel, and I don't blame you for giving him a cast-aside coffin, but you always go too damned far. Well enough to skimp on the thing some way, but you knew what a little man old Fenner was. I'll never get the picture out of my head as long as I live. You kicked hard, for Aesop's coffin was on the floor. Oh, his head was broken in and everything was tumbled about. I've seen sights before, but there was one thing too much here. Oh, an eye for an eye. Great heavens, Birch, you got what you deserved. The skull turned my stomach, but the other was worse. Those ankles cut neatly off to fit Matt Fenner's cast-aside coffin! (laughs) (laughs) That's the the end of the story. 
it reminds me of, of the old ghost story, you know, that if you stab a knife into a grave, the person in the grave will reach up and grab you. Well, I've, and, and, you know, the person in the story who does it, they stick the knife in and they try to walk away and the knife goes through their coat or their nightgown accidentally. So when they try to walk away, they get snapped back. Right. And, ha- and then they die of fright because they think the thing grabbed them. Yeah. Right? You know that story. I, I, I don't know that story. It's totally new to me. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah, I never heard that one before. It seems very similar to me. To this. Yeah, I mean, it, it has a very um, Tales of the Crypt kind of uh, feeling, you know. Uh, right. You know, and and honestly, I think it's a little strange. Uh, he says you got what you deserved at the end, and I really don't think he did. He got way more than he deserved. Yeah, I don't think so either. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you're right. It was pretty lopsided. Uh, eye for an eye. Yeah, it was, it was like an eye for both your eyes and your tongue. The guy was dead. Yeah, exactly. The guy's dead. What does he need? Is I mean, it's not. As, it sounds like he was an old son of a bitch too. So I doubt that there was any family members who were like, "We really wanted his feet in there," you know. <laughs> but I do love that um, Lovecraft's trying to do that kind of traditional ghost story. It was. It was um, submitted to ghost stories. Oh, when it was originally written. Yeah. Well, here's the thing. Well, there's a little story here. First, it was submitted to to Weird Tales. And it was turned down oh, okay. because Farnsworth Wright was freaked out about the whole um, the Love Dead thing. Right. When he uh, remember when he published th- that story that had kind of the necrophiliac in it. Right. And it was taken off the, the shelves in Indiana. Right. Um, he, he it made it harder for Lovecraft to get stuff published because every time you come in with something that was a little. Right. You know, and he wrote horror stories. So, of course, they're a little edgy and uh, he would get. Farnsworth would just freak out and say, no, yeah. we're not, we can't publish it. You know, I don't want the thing to happen again in Indiana. So then Lovecraft went over and tried to get it published with Ghost Stories, which was kind of a, as he put it, a very crude pulp magazine. Uh-huh. And uh, it was also rejected. It, eventually, it did get published in Weird Tales in 31. Okay. And he was paid, and he was paid $55. Oh, that's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah, not too bad. Well, I like this story. I think that they should have um, set up that Sawyer was more of an old wizard or bad guy earlier in the story. Right. I mean, it was weird. You just got a lot of exposition right at the end when the doctor was about to discover what he discovered. Right. I thought maybe if there was a, kind of a personal but, relationship, you know, maybe he did something specifically to the old grave robber at some point, you know, right. just it was mean to him or, you know, some, yeah. caused him some kind of personal thing. So it was kind of a payback, but then he got paid back for his payback and right exactly uh, you know but you know who did ken uh, kenneth height in his uh, book uh tour de lovecraft didn't didn't like this story one bit no he hated it mm. <laughs> and i yeah, the consensus that i got from most people um looking through other people's reviews is that they didn't they didn't like it i i actually did no see i guess lovecraft was really according to joshi he was trying to you know keep his language uh, less flourished. Oh, and right. So, and more colloquial. Yeah. Right. So he he was trying to write for a lower audience. Yeah. Yeah. And um, it, it, it kind of just doesn't, it's not a very good story. And then in, in the sense of like, it's pretty formula and there's nothing really interesting, interesting about the structure or, um, right. you know, specifically what happens. And there's really no Lovecraftian stuff. In yeah, there, true. You know? All of that is true. And, and I agree with it. But then for some reason, I also liked it. So there you go. I, I actually, you know, I wasn't blown away by it, but I felt like it was succinct. Now, the next story that we're going to cover, The Descendant, isn't really a f- story. It's more of a fragment. No, it is a fragment. It's just the beginning of a story, and then it just kind of drops off. Yeah. So I think that it might be fun to, to read the opening paragraph, but we probably won't do much more than that. In London, there is a man who screams when the church bells ring. 
He lives all alone with his streaked gray cat, and people call him harmlessly mad. His room is filled with books of the tamest and most puerile kind, and hour after hour he tries to lose himself in their feeble pages. All he seeks from life is not to think. For some reason, thought is very horrible to him, and anything which stirs the imagination, he flees as a plague. He is very thin and gray and wrinkled, but there are those who declare he is not nearly so old as he looks. Fear has its grisly claws upon him, and a sound will make him start with staring eyes and sweat-beaded forehead. Friends and companions he shuns, for he wishes to answer no questions. Those who once knew him as scholar and aesthete say it is very pitiful to see him now. He dropped them all years ago, and no one feels sure whether he left the country or merely sank from sight in some hidden byway. It is a decade now since he moved into Gray's Inn, and of where he had been he would say nothing till the night young William brought the Necronomicon. Whoa. Yeah, I love That's that. right. The Necronomicon showing up. Yeah. Basically, the story, it there's this crazy guy that lives in this inn, and uh, a young dude shows up and has the Necronomicon and hey, it says, hey, crazy guy, uh, I want you to check this out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's uh, I, I'm, I love that opening. I mean, it's a neat character, this guy that screams every time he hears bells and he just lives up in the inn with this, with this cat. And it seems to me that it's funny, this kid, the kid is called Williams. I think he's 23 years old who shows up at the inn. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he wants to learn from the old man, but he's really frustrated because the old man, he like just wants to read his Danielle Steele novels. You know? yeah. <laughs> he just does not want to think. He wants... Uh, I wish that that Lovecraft had listed some more specific things that he's doing. I mean, it's almost like he's just up there watching two men and a baby all day. He just does not want to think about any. They're not two men and a baby. Uh, two, two and a half men. Two and a half men. <laughs> two men and a baby was a Roger Corman knockoff of three men and a baby. He didn't have enough money to to do do all three. Well, yeah, he would do lower lower budget production. So right. He'd be he like, I can, I can make third. the same movie, but with two men. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so the kid, that the, the Williams, a 23-year-old kid, he can't get much out of the guy. But he does discover that he's educated, and I think he, um, well, his name's Lord Northam, actually, yeah, he right? Was, yeah, he was uh, from, uh, descended from kings and royalty and lords and things uh, that go back to Rome. Right, right. Yeah, his his he's got so much history in his. Yeah, world. well, Roman Roman Britain, I should say, not Rome. And uh, there's a castle. Right. He has a castle up in Yorkshire. That's which right, which is where I am. Yeah, yeah. Except, can you see it from your window? Uh, let me look. No, no, no. It's on the <laughs> other coast. It's on the east coast. Uh, uh, there's this uh, really cool area that I keep meaning to go to, uh, Robin Hood Bay in Yorkshire, which is on mm-hmm. the coast, and it's this kind of really awesome village, and there's like a castle over there, and. You can't drive on really? the streets because they're so narrow, so that people walk around. It's very quaint. I've seen pictures of it. It looks so cool, and I can't wait to go there. So, yeah, someday go take pictures of that and put it on the Facebook page, uh, and we'll say that those are that's the castle this guy's from. Okay, yeah, I'll do that. Yeah, <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's a great scene. Um, well, that you know, this reminded me of Rats in the Walls or something, right? It's a, he, yeah, he comes from this ancient stock of these people that lived in this castle, and they're origin stretch all the way back to you know Roman times. Right, well supposedly the whole kind of reason Lovecraft wrote this was he was uh, making a very careful study of London is what it said and mm-hmm. so he was kind of going into ancient history stuff because 
he said that, you know, England obviously has richer antiquities than America. Right. You know, so he wanted to just, this story was going to be kind of his really delving into the history, you know, like kind of what he did on the shunned house with new England. He wanted right. to do something like that with London, but, um, he kind of just, I don't know, got bored or, uh, you know, it was too much work for him. I don't right. know. He just didn't finish the story. So, <laughs> yeah, but there's one, there's one nice little scene before it does trail off, which is, um, yeah. Speaking of antiquities, um, the kid finds a copy of the Necronomicon. Now he's known about the book since he was 16, which I found amusing. That's probably when I discovered the Necronomicon, <laughs> um, or when I learned of it. But uh, he knows there's five copies in existence. Nobody's given them up. They're all under lock and key. But he finds a copy in a used bookstore. This Jewish bookstore owner sells it to him, and he kind of laughs when he gives it to him. Yeah, it's, it's, it's in a real market that's in London. The Jewish shop in the squalid it, precincts of Clare Market. Yeah, there we go. It's Clare Market? Yeah, that's in London. So the kid, he looks at it, and right away when he looks at the pages of the book, they start flipping him out. But he can't translate a lot of it. But he says, you know, I bet I know who can translate this stuff. He takes the book back to the old man, who faints <laughs> immediately. And then uh, the guy faints, and then he wakes up, and he tells the kid a story. And it's not really a story, because this is a fragment. But he does go on to describe his hideously ancient family history. Yeah. And um, he says, you know, my family goes all the way back. To Roman... Oh, well, no, his family goes back to Roman Britain. That's right. His family goes yeah. all the way back to Roman Britain. And the Augustan Legion, which was also mentioned in uh, Rats in the Walls. But uh, yeah, he does say <laughs> he does say that uh, there's a cliffside cavern where strange folk met together and made the elder sign in the dark. Right. <laughs> That's what the castle's built on this uh, this cavern where people made the elder sign in the dark. Right. Yeah. Which, which I is... think I think that's Lovecraft being dirty. You know, that's like a euphemism of some kind. <laughs> <laughs> Like, well, hey, baby, you want to go make the Elder Sign in the dark? Is is about this. This is the first mention of the Elder Sign. Yeah, what is that exactly? We talked well, about it a little bit. Yeah, before. it's well. I mean, in this, it sounds like it's a, a like a gesture, like a hand sign, you know. But it mm. comes up later. You know, the Elder Sign sort of a big deal in, in, in Lovecraft, you know, pop culture stuff. You know, the, there's the right. Elder Sign, which is the circle with the five pointed star with a flaming eye in the center. But uh -huh. that isn't actually a description from Lovecraft. That's a description from uh, August Derleth. Oh, okay. That uh, he, he described it as that in A Lurker in the Threshold. But um, this, it's first described by Lovecraft in The Shadow Over Innsmouth, uh, which is coming up pretty soon. And yeah. they describe it as kind of a, <clears throat> it's uh, a single line with five shorter uh, lines branching off. Okay. So, so that's, that's that's sort of Elder Sign classic. Yeah. And yeah. then the but, Durleth uh, one is, you know, Elder Yeah, the Durleth Stein, one's a lot formula. more popular. That's it just right. it looks more magical, like more That's know, the one you'd see on a Call of Cthulhu right, role playing exactly. game book or right. something, right? And people have a lot yeah. of t there's t-shirts of it and stuff. It, I mean, it does look a lot cooler cuz the other the one that Lovecraft, you know, drew or or you know, sketched out is just looks like a tree branch. So it's pretty Yeah. Pretty boring. <laughs> I think that would be the worst bar uh, bar slogan of all time. Sometimes you want to go where strange people meet and make the elder sign in the dark. <laughs> Why am I singing this? Actually, didn't somebody check us on our pronunciation of Innsmouth? We keep saying Innsmouth, Innsmouth. It's Innsmouth. Innsmouth. Yeah. Shout over Innsmouth. At some it's point, we're going to murder every town name, every monster name. Just to Oh, sure. It. Hey, man, I'm getting yelled at here. It's it's out of control in England. You don't know what's <laughs> oh, really? going on. I, you know, we're driving by and I go, because, you know, you don't say shy, uh, Shire. You say sure. You know, you don't mm -hmm. say like, right. you know, Wilshire. It's not Wilshire. It's Wilshire. 
right. so we go by this place. It's spelled D E R B Y S H I R E. So mm-hmm. uh, you Derbyshire. It's Derbyshire. It's not Derbyshire. I didn't know yeah, that. Yeah, that's like I used to go. Well, the reason I know that, I think I know that from your wife because she was calling the Derby, which is someplace in Los Angeles I go to, the, the Derby. And I found that. <laughs> I don't know what the hell she was talking about. We're not going to read much more of the story. In the, in the last paragraph, the old man talks about how he's this typical Lovecraftian protagonist where he, you know, he thinks that um, he's got a feeling that our tangible world is only an atom in a fabric, vast and ominous, that there's all these other things in the world that he wants to find out about. My favorite part is it says Derby. During the 90s, he dabbled in Satanism. <laughs> yeah, who didn't? I mean, yeah, who did? I mean, I did, certainly. Um, but he goes, you know, he, he says he tries to seek out the nameless city. You know, Lovecraft checks some of his other stories in that last paragraph there. But it sort of trails off. It doesn't go anywhere. I don't really understand how this got published. No, it's, it's it was published after Lovecraft's death. Uh, so it's one of those things. But it was published yeah. pretty soon after his death in 38. So... Uh, in the huh. leaves, which is kind of, you know, we talked about this before about, you know, I, it's really lame that this stuff gets published um, because obviously yeah. it wasn't meant to be. Well, you know, there's um, another last little tidbit here. It's the main characters might be an amalgam of a couple of, of Lovecraft's, you know, favorite writers. Oh, okay. Um, the Grey's, Grey's Inn is where Arthur Mackin lived for many years. Okay, Arthur Mackin is the author who wrote The Great God Pan. He, Lovecraft is a big fan of his work. Right, right. And also... Mm-hmm. Um, Lord Dunsany, who was a uh, 19th Baron in a line whose beginnings went uncomfortably far back into the past. You know, that that seems might be reference uh, to him because Lord Dunsany was an 18th century uh, Baron in a line that was founded in the 12th century. So, OK, so, so he's so just calling go. out to his own literary idols. Yeah, like yeah. It might be a little little tip of the hat to those guys. But, you know, yeah. uh, I want to thank Anthony Tedesco for giving us uh, another amazing read. Yeah, thanks so much, Anthony. And uh, Troy Sterling Neese, of course, for donating some music to us, which plays very well against Anthony's readings. I uh, love it. I dig that. And uh, with that, I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And I'm Chris Lackey. And this has been the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At HPPodcraft.com. HPPodcraft.com. Ah!